The Gospel of John, starting in chapter 4. The chapter starts by just kind of telling us what's going on and that uh, Jesus was aware, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus' disciples were baptizing more than John was baptizing. And so he decided to leave Judea, went again into Galilee, and then passed through Samaria. And so he came to a city called Sychar in Samaria. And it was near where uh, Jacob had given Joseph the land, and Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus decided to kind of sit down at the well. He was a bit tired, and it was about noon. And then there came a woman, a Samaritan woman, to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And his disciples had gone away, so it's just him and her. They had gone to the end of the city to get some food. And the, and the Samaritan woman said, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? The uh, Jews looked down on the Samaritans because they were half-breeds. They had a little bit of Israeli in them, and then they also had some Assyrian and who knows what, because the Assyrian Empire had removed the, uh, you know, most of the, or I don't know, most, it, they had removed all the major people of Israel from the country, and then maybe maybe most. And then they had repopulated the country with people from other countries that they had conquered. And so it was this mixture of people. Then later when the animals all started attacking, they sent Levites back to teach them of the way of God. And so they developed a religion that was based somewhat on foreign uh, God worship and somewhat on worshiping um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so that was they had that foundational piece, but they had a lot of a lot of things that were not given by God, and the so the Jews looked down on them, and the Samaritans therefore also didn't like the Jews because they they had this rivalry. So Jesus answers her and says, "If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink.'" You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself, and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This concept is a major focus of John in telling the the gospel, you know, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus, his very life, what he came to do, what he came to offer. He's describing himself as the one who gives living, eternal water that you know, again, we just talked about this, but water is necessary for life. You cannot go more than, say, three days without water uh, unless the Lord himself is doing it. Um, And so we all need water. So he's saying he is of a more important eternal water. And there's many pictures of this in scripture. We see the Israelites wandering in the desert and they're, they're dying of thirst. They're grumbling And uh, Moses is supposed to speak to the rock, but instead he hits the rock, which causes Moses not to enter into the promised land. 
but he hits the rock with his staff and these waters spring out in the desert to give life. So Jesus is saying that he is this source of life. The prophets, both Ezekiel and Zechariah, had talked about um, this river of life that flows out of the, the temple that gets deeper and deeper and deeper. That would be kind of, um, you know, that's unnatural, right? That it starts out small and it somehow increases in volume as it goes. Um, but that, again, is a picture of the life offered through Jesus, the kingdom promised through Jesus. That when we take of his life, his water, we enter into him and we become a people of him and he becomes greater. His life multiplies throughout the world. And of course, uh, we see this picture in the end of Revelation, the end of the Bible, this same picture. And so Jesus is saying here that he is the source of these waters. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. He says, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So she's kind of blown away. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So this is, is really an amazing encounter. Um, we know Jesus, for the most part, uh, wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles. And here, you know, Samaritans are unique in that they're not completely Gentile. Um, but they're, you know... They're, as far as from the, from the standard Jewish perspective, they were the worst. Um, and yet he comes and he spends time with this woman and these people, as we're about to see. And so he says, you worship what you do not know. So he's saying your way of worshiping Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is all wrong. He, you don't know what you're doing. Um, he says the Jews are following a way prescribed by God. And so they, they know that these things were handed down and they're following it to, to some degree or another. He says, because of this way, because of these promises, because of this line and pattern, salvation is coming from this people. Of course, we know it's coming from him who is of these people. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshiper. So he's, he's, he's removing the worship from a particular place and saying instead there will be a people who live a life of this spirit, a life of these living waters, a people that flow with the spirit of God 
and are not beholden to any particular place because God is not stuck in any particular place. Remember, it wasn't even God's idea to be stuck in Jerusalem. He just went along with David to have the temple, and he did it to, as a picture for us for many reasons. But then he said, but he, you know, he wasn't confined to that. And Jesus is saying, there's now coming a time where the ones who worship the Father will worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, which is another word for, it's the Hebrew word for Christ. Christ is the Greek word. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So it's it's kind of amazing because he's the most direct he is about announcing himself as Messiah um, that we see early on. Um, generally, he's a lot more vague. <laughs> but to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he, he speaks very clearly and says, I am the Messiah. And so then his disciples come up and they're amazed he's speaking to this woman. Generally, you don't go off speaking to a woman alone, for one, especially a Samaritan woman. And here he is doing that. And yet they didn't question him because, you know, he's their teacher. He's the one they're following. And so the woman left the water pot, went into the city and said to the men there, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. So it's interesting that they had lost so much of the law of Moses, and yet they had not lost uh, the idea that a Messiah was to come. So the people of the city started coming out to him, and meanwhile the disciples are telling him, Rabbi, eat! But he says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so they're saying to each other, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And he answers them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So he's saying he's empowered by God more than food. And of course, he's in a human body. He needs food. But at this point, he's, he's so uh, communing with God. The idea of food is not even appealing to him. Um, and, but he wants to instead teach them a principle that, you know, God, God has times and seasons and he says, you know, look around you what God has done. There are many prophets that came and just, you know, prophesied and prophesied and taught and taught and the people ignored them, but seeds were being planted. He's saying this is a time when there's going to be much harvesting. And, you know, similarly, we, there, there's been a, a couple millennia that have passed where it's, you know, a difficult road, the the word has kind of spread throughout the world, but you don't have this uh, the same kind of atmosphere that we saw there in this early time. But, but the prophets do talk about a latter time, a fulfilling kingdom. And so when we step into these things, it's the God who does the work that 
he brings about a harvest and we just step into the work. So, you know, he's talking about times and seasons to be aware of them and participate in what God is doing, that sometimes he moves far more powerfully than is worthy of the work that you're putting in, but you're just simply being a part of what he is doing. And, I mean, he mentions there's eternal reward for this thing. Um, and, and so what do we take away? Seek the Lord. Worship the Lord. Grow in the Lord to be ready at, for whatever he puts before you. So many Samaritans are coming to believe. The woman's going around saying, hey, he, he never met me before, but he knew all about my, my past. You know, because the Spirit had shown him into her life deeper than what was on the surface, she had now come to believe, and, and the other people were saying, wow, is this really the Messiah? And then they're coming to him. He stays there a couple of days. And now many are believing not because of what she said, but because of the fact that now they're hearing for themselves directly from him. And so now they believe we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. That's really powerful. These people weren't bound down by a heavy religion and they came to believe quite easily. Again, that's, I think, instructive for our day. And then they went from there into Galilee and, and Jesus, you know, he testified, he, he taught them that a prophet has no honor in his own country. The people that knew him, watched him grow up, um, or felt like they had a hand. He's saying country, so that's not just people who saw him grow up, but that's his people in general. Um, they felt like they had a better handle on things, and so they could eat more easily dismiss him. These people that had nothing, no real commonality with him, they instantly grabbed hold of him and accepted him. 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And then, therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out to Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. <laughs> I'm kind of with that guy. I, don't, I mean, I'm sure Jesus was speaking about more than just uh, this particular man, but his son's dying. I don't think he's looking for a generic miracle. <laughs> he wants his son <laughs> to not die. Uh, he says, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into, into Galilee. So, apparently, obviously, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen here because at the moment when the guy came to him, he just wanted his son to live. That was his concern. He wasn't thinking about anything else, uh, which I get, you know. As son's dying, that's, what can I do to help my son not die? That's first and foremost. But after his son 
gets new life and he figures out that it, this came from Jesus. He, and not only he, but his entire household, which would be his family, but also servants and that sort of thing, um, come to worship Jesus as Messiah. They come to follow him. And so Jesus was correct. Because of the sign and wonders, he believed. And on to chapter 5. There's a feast. It doesn't tell us which one here yet. Um, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast. And in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there's a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. And it had five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring, whoever then first, weird, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. So that part about the moving waters and the angels apparently wasn't in early versions of manuscripts that had been found. Uh, anyways, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. And he says to him, do you wish to get well? So I, that, that part read funny, but the common understanding is the first person who got in uh, when, when the water stirred would be healed. And so Jesus asked him if he wants to be well. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. So he says, it's impossible for me to get down when the water stirs because I'm feeble and somebody else gets there before me. Jesus says, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more so that nothing worse happens to you. This is common among, uh, this is common for Jesus to, to give this teaching, but this is something that many people choose to ignore about Jesus. There's this popular culture idea of Jesus. This Jesus is all about some worldly version of love and no judgment and um you know, that he just wants your flesh to be happy, whatever that looks like. That wasn't Jesus at all. And so Jesus did love with God's love. And he absolutely had mercy upon all of our ways in which we are fallen. And but he said, I'm the way out of those ways. So here he says, sin no more, so that nothing worse happens to you. In other words, this sin is an open door for terrible things to happen to you, like this feebleness that you have experienced for all these years. Um, don't, don't partake in sin and allow yourself to be exposed to the enemy in this way. But instead, worship the Lord, walk with the Lord, 
that you live a good and fruitful life. There's a reason God gave the law. And there's, there's many reasons. And this is one of them. It's for your benefit. It's not to harm you, but to show you the way to good life. So the men went back to the Jews, presumably the Pharisees, and said, oh, it was Jesus that made me well. He was the one doing these things on the Sabbath. And he answered them, sorry, I've skipped something here. Well, yeah, it kind of skips. Um, Anyways, somehow now the Jews, again, probably the Pharisees, or maybe the Sadducees, they're um, now somehow persecuting Jesus, and Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. So he says basically quite simply, I'm about the father's work. I'm not about your understanding of the law of Moses. I am the fulfillment of the law of Moses. So the leadership there wanted to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so this is an interesting thing because the the scriptures, this is not an isolated understanding. The, the scriptures starting from the law of Moses and working through different uh, you know, psalms and prophetic books, um, God makes it clear that he wants to raise up sons. Uh, and I've read recently in Deuteronomy where he's saying, I, I did all these things to you in the wilderness so that you could understand you're being disciplined just as a father disciplines his son. Um, this is this is the whole point of God. He's been doing it since the beginning. Yet, many people, if they would hear me say this right now, would say it is blasphemous, the idea that we be raised up as sons of God. Even though it's directly in the New Testament, it's directly in the Old Testament. Because the spirit of religion wants us to separate ourselves from Jesus and have him be God and us be lowly sinners. And Jesus says, no, I am the way and the truth and the life. You are supposed to come to the Father. And the way to get there is through me and through my way of life. To be raised up as a son of God. To have the world and your own old self removed from you. To die to all that and to enter into being a son of God. And so... The Old Testament actually says this many times, but they somehow missed it. Just as the New Testament says this many times, but people somehow miss it. Because the spirit of religion would have us live just a religious life. But that's not the life Jesus just talked about. The life of living in spirit and in truth. Not according to religion. And so they're upset because he's talking very boldly about this, that he is indeed the Son of God. Of course, he's the only begotten Son of God, whereas we can only get there through him. But nevertheless, he is the modeled son for us, that that he would raise up many sons. But their understanding, they had a problem with it, because the understanding of Jews at the time is that a son is basically the future version of the father. So he's essentially equal because give it 30 years and he will be the father, representing the same family. So he's the new, you know, the later version, but the same thing, just 30 years down the road. And so he's saying, how are you making yourself equal with God in that way? And, and of course, Jesus 
actually never did that, although he does explain towards the end of this book, which we'll get to, that he became completely unified with God, and he calls us to be completely unified with God. Uh, but he never even, but he never went around calling himself equal with God, but th that's their understanding of what they're seeing. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. So he's saying, I am incapable of doing anything on my own. But I have the Spirit of God within me, and He's showing me what the Father is doing, and I do what I see the Father doing. And so He is capable of all things, and in this case, all things through me. So this is the life of the Son. This is the life that He calls us into. This is the model for us. He's vague for a reason, because I say vague, it's maybe not the right word, but he, he he's saying son instead of me because he's show, talking about a model for many sons. He says, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Remember, he tells his, his disciples later, um, you will do greater works than these, right? So he's talking about a model of sonship in the father. Not just himself, but obviously, again, there. Obviously, I, I just, I think everyone gets it. Since, since we're more likely to put Jesus on a pedestal as un, unapproachable, um, I don't feel a whole lot of need to say Jesus is the Messiah. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We cannot get to the Father except through Him, and so we can't go just be like Jesus outside of Jesus. We have to enter into his life. He's the only way. But I, th I feel like most people get that part. So I don't spend a lot of time on that. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son, so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He's saying that the Father, who is the creator of all, the judge of all, has all powers and authorities, has given all of this to the Son. He's saying all authority and power has given to him because he has been raised up and, and trusted with this. This is not something that comes just because he decided, I'm following you, God. This is because of the life that he committed to and the Father filled him with. This is the life that we are invited into. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. He's saying there is only one way into eternal life, and he is that way. The only way to escape judgment. 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. 
and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in tombs will hear his voice, will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. He's speaking about all people here. He's basically saying, for for those who died before they ever even heard about me, and they... They, you know, the way I read this, he, they're given a chance in, in death before the final judgment. They get a chance with, with Jesus to either accept him, to hear him and live or not and, and face eternal judgment. And it, it's hard for us to comprehend that anyone in that situation would choose anything other than him. But, you know, from our experience, we look around and we see people that, face obvious situations all the time where they should accept and they turn away what's truly in the heart of a person. Um, so my estimation is many of even those would choose to go their own way, even at that time. But he's, he's making very clear here that, that there, is this, there is eternal ramifications for these things. You know, and, and he's talking about eternal judgment here, which is not typically, that's not what he spends most of his time. He spends the vast majority of his time speaking about a kingdom in this life. But here he's definitely speaking about eternal things. But at the same time, it can be a picture, and it is a picture, of those of us walking around with eternal death in us. You know, Paul speaks about that we're all dying. Even if we're young and healthy, we're dying. We don't have that long to live. We've got less than 100 years left. We're dying. And so in the same way, we are in these tombs. And he offers a way out. He offers the eternal life of the living waters we talked about earlier. And Jesus says, as he hears the Father, he judges. He gets his wisdom from the Father and the Father alone. He's not affected by the wisdom of the world. Whatever the new fad is, whatever the new riot is, whatever the media is talking about, he's not affected by any of this. What is the Father saying? What is his eternal wisdom? And based on that, he judges. And he judges, since he does not judge on his own will, but on the will of the Father, his judgment is just. And he says, the Father himself testifies on his behalf. Otherwise, if it were just him, he would just be a crazy person. And there's there's a lot of people out in the world who want to say, oh, Jesus is good one way, and then there's other good one other ways. No, Jesus was either crazy, or he was Messiah. He left no room for misinterpretation. The only way we can misinterpret that is just to ignore what he said and create a fantasy in our own mind. I know I I was there long ago. Um, I I hadn't studied the works of Jesus, but I just decided what he was. That's again, that's the heart of man to create our own religion. That's we we look at someone who's worshiping a silly idol in their house, um, and we think it's foolishness, but we all do it in our hearts unless we lay all that down, seek the Lord and his truth, and die to our own understandings and interpretations. 
And then he explains John. because it, So in the law of Moses, there had to be two witnesses. So you see the importance of John being sent that, um, that he be a witness because there was an important element of the law of Moses that to accept somebody's word that there needed to be two witnesses. So he says, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I see these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So he says, you accepted John as a manger prophet from God, and you enjoyed the light that he shared, and he testified that I am the Messiah. So this is the great testimony to you. He says, it's not the testimony to me. I only care what the Father says and what the Father's doing. But this was provided for you. 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me, that the Father has sent me. So he says another witness is the works. What You, you have to deal with these things because I'm doing miraculous things. And they are the Father's testifying because I as a man cannot do these things, but I with God in me can do these things. And so these very things are the testimony of the father who sent me. 37. And the father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him who sent whom he sent. So he says, you've never seen the father. You've never heard the father, but it's obvious. It's kind of like the wind we talked about the other day. It's obvious that the Father is in me because look at what I do, what I say, and what I do. In that way, you can see the Father. But if you do not believe me, you cannot see the Father. You can make up your own reasons for what's happening here. 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. He says, you spend all your time with the scriptures, but you're unwilling to see what they really say. They testify continually about me. But you want them for your own purposes, not for the truth. You're unwilling to see the truth, so you don't see that they point to me. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I come, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. But, but can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only? Sorry, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So again, he's saying all the scriptures point to me, and you don't believe me. So you're not following Moses, who you think you're following. Your religion is failing you. It is all pointed at Jesus, and you're missing it. He says, you accept one another. You accept a crafty teacher, a charismatic teacher that comes along teaching things. You, you, lo- you, know, you love him. You give him your attention. But I come with the very essence of God, the glory of God, and you refuse to believe me. 
So how, how can you come to the Father without this belief? Again, he is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father. And so we worship him and him alone. And that's it for today. And uh, I love the next chapter, so I'm looking forward to that. God bless you.